Have you ever whispered to yourself, Thrawn, Thrawn? You have to say it in a deeper tone of voice. Okay, show me. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am your host, Fiona, and I am here with our book friends, Corrine. Hey. Gabriel. Hello. And Virginia. Hello. We've all heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. And we all do it anyway, because what else have you got? Read reviews? Listen to podcasts? (laughs) I just look at the cover. (laughs) Now, something I've recently realized is that there's another great way to judge a book. That is by its title. (laughs) Sometimes a title alone can draw you in. And some people have a a word for them that is just like a, I got to pick that up or a sentence structure. There's definitely um, publishing trends in which, you know, the like somebody does somebody such and such does such and such um, was a thing in the last couple of years. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes you just gravitate towards that. You find a structure you like and you think, you know what? Throw caution to the wind. I will pick that up solely based on the title. So today we are talking about books with great titles. Uh, And what I'm wondering for my book friends is, is there something for you that just makes you pick something up? Like, it's just like, oh, there's that word. I guess I'm going to read that book or anything else that really draws you to a book. So I would definitely say there is. I can't necessarily point to specific words immediately. But when I used to be very into makeup, this was actually the same thing. If a product had specific words in the name, like I once saw a lipstick that said something like cathedral or gothica, like it's just the image that it created. I was like, I'm here. Your marketing is working on me. And sometimes that happens with books too. Again, I can't really think of anything in particular, but there's certain words that just pull up very vivid emotions for me, I would say. And then I'm like, you know, even if I don't actually pick up the book, because usually then I will look at it, usually read whatever synopsis is there or look at some quotes about it or something. So it's not just an immediate pickup or sorry, an immediate read, but it is an immediate pickup. I will walk over and I'll be like, all right. So I guess actually maybe um, maybe a good example is recently out in our newer fiction stuff. We have a book called Gordo and Gordo is what my father's nickname was. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh, and I immediately went to pick it up. And it looks like it's interesting. And I'm actually hoping to read it at some point on the podcast. So that might be coming up. I also um, was looking ahead at at what we're going to be doing. And um, we're going to be doing a, a Southern Gothic episode. And Southern Gothic book names are amazing. Uh, Like it made me realize how come I haven't read a lot more of this because wow, great names. I have nothing, Fiona. Sorry. 
I'm just like, I was like, I can't think of anything. I don't know. I mean, definitely titles intrigue me. And I would go and like, you know, like Gabriel said, go read the synopsis, maybe read a review, listen to a podcast maybe, but I definitely don't have anything in particular. I mean, clever title, I guess sometimes, or all the ones that I know you see in, you know, like some of the cozy mystery title, the punny titles, even though I know I don't like cozies, I do appreciate their titles. As ever, I'm going to go polar opposite to Virginia. Yeah, I like a long title. I like a long title. I want a a lot of words in it. I want it to be like very descriptive, preferably like a quote or an allusion from something that I think is particularly clever. Um, Usually the words cult anywhere in title or subtitle is an immediate win. And because I like uh, mysteries, if there's the word murder in it, I'll probably pick it up just to kind of do a little peruse. And unlike Virginia, I hate the punny titles. I, I hate them so much. And equally, I hate anything that is the girl in the, the girl at the, the woman in the, I hate those. I hate those. I hate those. You don't hate the cozies. You just hate the titles, right? Yeah. I love a cozy. I just hate their titles. That's great. And I, I like the title and you, you, you can read the book. I'll give you the titles that I think is good. And then you go read the book because I don't read them. So all works out. Perfect split. You, <laughs> combined, we're the perfect reader. <laughs> You're just going to start finding cozies on your, with like ridiculous titles on your desk. Oh, Virginia liked this. All right. Well, um, I'm very excited to hear what everyone has chosen based now. Like, let's start with Virginia, because I'm curious, you know, if a title is not a factor, but today you had to choose a book with a good title, what did you go with? So as I mentioned to you earlier, just before we start this podcast, I was saying to Fiona, I'm like, you're not talking about the book that I thought you were going to talk about because... I think Fiona originally had like the best title. I'm not going to spoil it because they're going to talk about it in an upcoming episode, but I think that was the best title. So given that Fiona has already picked the best one, I was just like, okay, well, what do I have in my pile of holes and new books that intrigues me? And that I borrowed it probably because of the title. And so for today, I pick for you, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death by Selena Gordon. And for those of you who are on the podcast, you can see the book cover. The first missus is MRS and the second missus is M-I-S-S-E-S. And so it took me a while before I realized that it actually sounds the same. I thought it was intriguing because I was just kind of like, who is this Mrs. Death? Like, are we talking about the wife of Death? Are we talking about mother of Death? Are we talking about someone who just happened to have the last name Death? And the second Mrs. Death, like, what does that mean? Is Death gone? Is Steph dead? Is he like, is there no longer Steph? What's the definition of this missus, you know? And so I thought that was interesting. So I decided that that was the book I wanted to talk about today. And uh, after reading the book, I definitely appreciate the title even a bit more. But in this case, Mrs. Steph is Steph herself. History likes to make us think that Steph is a man, You know, Def is a man with a hood and a side, but no, Def is a woman. And it makes sense when you think about it, because we've all heard it. You know, Def comes to us and you don't know when and it sneaks up on you. You never know. You can't expect Def, you know, and you don't see it coming and all those kind of phrases. And when you think about it, Def has to be a woman. In fact, Def has to be a Black woman because who is more invisible to do the work of death. Is there another person that is 
as the author said, more silence than the woman, the poor old woman, the poor old black woman, your servant that is bent over a mob cleaning the floor of a hospital. Who is more invisible, more easily talk over, more ignore, more betray, more easy to walk by than a black woman? And so this is the story of Mrs. Staff. She has been doing this work since eternity. And recently, she's feeling that her job is weighing down on her. She's getting a little burnout. She's a bit depressed. And because she doesn't understand why is she still so needed constantly, even though as human beings have made leaps and bounds in understanding the world, in technology, in medicine, but why is she just as busy as before? And no one ever sees her. She's there all the time. And sometimes she has to go back to the same place twice in a week because there's another shooting. There is another death due to police brutality. There are more refugees dying while they're trying to cross over to a land of safety. They're just so much and she is so done. And she just wants someone to see her. She wants someone to hear her. And as her therapist said, yes, it is a really hard job that you have. You know what? Talking about it, writing about it, it is cathartic. You should, you should try that. You should do more of that. So she decided to choose a writer to write down her story so that she can tell that story so that she has a memoir, basically. And so she has chosen a writer named Wolf Wilford as her conduit. Now, she met Wolf when Wolf was eight years old. And Death doesn't forget. Death remembers all the deaths that she came across. But Wolf was somebody especially memorable to her. Wolf remembers Mrs. Death too very well. It was a night when he was eight years old. He was woken up by his mother and his mother said, Wolf, wake up. Can, can you smell smoke? I think I smell smoke. Wake up, Wolfie, wake up. Run, just get out of here. Get out of here. And the next thing Wolf remembers was standing outside his home, his apartment building, watching it burn with very few people that are from the building. Most of the people are still trapped inside, including his mother. And he remembers howling and screaming and then seeing this woman, this woman staring out from the window, staring right back at him. And that was Mrs. Death. And so when Mrs. Steph comes to Wolf to ask Wolf to write down her story, he knows exactly who she is. And Mrs. Steph sings to him. He can glimpse the ghosts of London through Mrs. Steph's murder ballads, stories, and poems. And so what we have here is a memoir of Mrs. Steph. I'm not going to tell you any more because it's a story that I think develop in a way that you may not expect. So I'm just going to let you discover that yourself. 
Um, Selena Gordon, the author, is a poet of Jamaican and Irish descent because I don't read poetry, so I have never heard of her before, but apparently she is pretty big. In fact, I think BBC did a whole documentary of her a year recording her work. I don't know if it's writing this book or writing something else, um, but this is her debut novel. And so it's a bit of a, because she's a poet, it's a hybrid of prose and poetry. And the poems like really of course, packs a punch. It really delivers that emotional impact that this story really needs. And her prose, even her prose are really poetic. And you can totally tell that this is like a poet writing. And so with the poems, with the songs, with those refrains, with those choruses, there's lots of white spaces in the book for you to really get you the space to think about what the story is telling us, to, to breathe, to take a pause, and Selena Gordon also did it like in a very, like a lot of wordplay, a lot of wordplay with the words time and death and life, time of death, a lifetime, time of my life. For a book that, that mentions death twice in the title, it is surprisingly full of life. It is a, like really a, a celebration of how wonderful life is. And she's keeping reminding us of that while she kind of plunges us also in some pretty dark episodes in the book because Mrs. Death does have seen a lot and she does talk about some of the things that she has seen and they are quite dark. But I feel like the way the book is right from the start, it almost gives you this blanket. It gives you this like safety blanket or stuffy or whatever it is that you need to hold on to, to, to process this book, to process the things that are saying. And there's so many messages in the book, but they're all very life affirming, despite some of the really tough topics. And it reminds me very much of that kind of that stoic sort of philosophy of memento mori, like that, you know, you remember death, you remember you're going to, oh, we're all going to die one day. But what does that mean? Does that mean that I should just give up now? No, the whole idea is that remember that you're going to leave this world one day. So live your life to the fullest every single day and treasure those moments. And, and that is a very strong message that come across this book. In the story, because of what happens to his mother, he's never got over that. It is not a thing that you get over with. So he's suffering from panic attacks. He is suffering from depression. And, and the book really tried to remind us whenever the world is too much, whenever that there's just too much stuff going on and they're all bad, as we all kind of sometimes feel, remember life, remember living, remember to live. And I, I feel that sort of that warmth, that similar to the book, the Emily Austin book that I talked about before, everyone in this room will someday be dead, which I also think is an amazing title. It feels very much like that. It's just this kindness, be kind to yourself through all of this darkness. And I think it's, it's death is in that inevitable and Mrs. Death understands that. But She's also telling us that there are also a lot of death that could be prevented. And Selena Golden in the book really tries to remember them, to take the time to remember each and every one of those people who have lost their lives for no reason. All the tragic death that happens in our world that doesn't have to happen. And the author doesn't want that to fade away. And in the book, she mentions lots and lots of names of victims that have died for really deaths that could be preventable. And 
So she is encouraging us and inviting us at the end of the book to remember all the people because she knows that she can't name them all in the book, but please do remember all the people and remember that those steps don't need to happen. So if you like kind of experimental fiction, if you like a book that plays with the form, if you like a bit of poetry and also lyrics almost in, in, in a book, please do check out Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death by Selena Gordon. Thank you so much, Virginia. I'm really excited to read that one. And what a seriously great title. Like you say, I love that it makes you it brings all these questions just upon reading the, the title, like four, four words. And you're like, what is this about? Uh, um, yeah, I really think that that is a, a great title that makes you want to know what's inside the book. All right. Um, let's go on to Corrine. What did you pick today? All right. Um, I went very on brand. So my protagonist, my main character, is a devious poisoner. She is uh, slowly by degrees poisoning her sister that she lives with. She is a master chemist who spends most of her time upstairs in her lab devising and purifying various different poisons that she can find around the crumbling mansion of Buckshaw that she lives in with her family. She terrorizes the village people by riding her trusted steed around the village and in the countryside, poking herself into their lives and asking difficult questions. She also solves mysteries, mind-boggling crimes that the police cannot solve that otherwise without her brilliant mind would be unsolvable. And she just happens to be 11 years old. This is Flavia Deleuze, an aspiring chemist with, shall we say, a passion for poison. She lives in a crumbling mansion with her family, her two older sisters, Daphne and Ophelia, who at the beginning of the book lock her in the closet because she is extremely annoying. Um, they live there with her father, Colonel Deluccia, who is a bit still broken over the tragic disappearance of his wife and the girl's mother's Harriet uh, when she went missing in a mountaineering expedition in Tibet. In kind of rounding out this strange cobbled family is Dodger, who is absolutely devoted to Flavia's father, having saved his life in the war, who kind of looks after them and is the only adult who has kind of cottoned on to the fact that Flavia is not your average 11-year-old child. Now, at the beginning of this book, Flavia is locked in the closet, ingeniously escapes from her sister's machinations, and stumbles onto a dead bird with a stamp pinned to the beak. Now, Flavia is instantly suspicious, mostly of her sisters, but the stamp is an interesting touch. Their father is a philatelist, a known philatelist. And so she decides to, of course, examine the cause of death of this bird. However, a few hours later, she comes, she puts her hands on, shall we say, a much larger and more interesting specimen. As she is walking around the grounds of the mansion, she finds a person dying in the cucumber patch. With his last dying breath, he gasps out, Folly! And promptly passes away. And instead of being frightened or upset, Flavia thinks to herself, 
this is the most interesting thing that has ever happened in my life. And she sets about investigating who has caused this terrible crime, as well as trying to clear her father's name. This is the wonderful series by Alan Bradley, the first of which is The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie. And all of these books have absolutely baddie titles that are wonderful quotations from other things. Some of my favorites include Thrice the Brindled Cat Hath Mewed, The Weed That Strings the Hangman's Bag, you know, the the common saying that we all use in day-to-day life, and A Red Herring Without Mustard. These are a wonderfully written, um, very, very rich with literary quotation, mystery series, very kind of redolent of Agatha Christie, or if you really enjoy the Father Brown series on Acorn, um, it's very post-war. It's very like a little village and everyone having adventures. And it's just, the entire series is what I would call a delight. A delight from start to finish. So if you're looking for a lovely mystery series with some of the most boggling titles of all time, I would heartily suggest that you pick up Alan Bradley's series. Thank you so much, Corrine. It's funny. I feel like I have picked up each one of those books. I know nothing about them, but like am very aware of the titles because it's like, yeah, that is a good title. Uh, and I also would like to know what a ph- philatelist is. A, a philatelist is a stamp collector. Yeah. So someone who's like big into stamps. <laughs> not a word you get to use every day. (laughs) Okay. Um, Gabriel, you are up next and you went with a one word title. So I'm curious, is this uh, like, I often like a, a like, bam, one word. This is the book. Is that something that you, you tend to gravitate towards or was it just this one? No, I'd say it's just this one. So like Corrine, I think if I'm going to gravitate towards a title, I like a lot of words. I grew up on fallout boy uh, it's got to have at least like a sentence or two in it for, and, you know, have nothing to do with the actual content for me to be anyway interested in it. Like any good follow boy song. I think the same could probably be true of books. So this is a one word title and the word itself, the name of the book I chose is Thrawn. So might not sound interesting to you, but the girlies who don't know, You know how spine-chilling it was in 2017 to see this release, written by Mr. Timothy Zahn himself, cult legend among fans of Star Wars lore, probably the most beloved Star Wars author. I would say more or less of all time. I think I've heard people talk more about Timothy Zahn than almost anyone else when it comes to Star Wars novelizations. And so Timothy Zahn is someone who, while he's definitely more known for his Star Wars works, has also written a few short stories and novels. He wrote the Black Collar series, uh, the Cobra series, both of which I hadn't actually heard of until I looked them up. And they're also very sci-fi kind of, I think, mysteries, I would almost call them, but definitely most well-known for his Star Wars books. So uh, the first one that he wrote was back in 1991. It was Heir to the Empire, in which he is, he's sort of the man that we can credit, credit for coming up with the idea of Grand Admiral Thrawn. So a lot of his books are are sort of older. They they came out in what we would now call Star Wars Legends, which is basically uh, what the lore was before the Disney movies came in. And he's also now written a few series in what we would call the new canon. So things that we consider to be canonly part of the Star Wars universe. The Thrawn trilogy, 
And he also just got finished writing another trilogy starring Thrawn, which is called Thrawn Ascendancy. So this is this is one that just came out, the last book of which just came out pretty recently uh, called Chaos Rising. Um, and Thrawn Ascendancy is his origin story. I mean, this one, I, I suppose the book Thrawn itself is also kind of an origin story, but there is a particular event in this character's life that some of the books, they sort of take place before that event. And then the series that I was reading takes place after the event. So they're both sort of origins, but of a different sort. Ron, the book that I read was his debut into the new canon. It was met with an outpouring of love and support from fans like me who were just excited to see our favorite member of the Blue Man group back and being a space tactician. It was, as I mentioned, followed by two more to make it a trilogy. Then he made the, the prequel trilogy. So who is Thrawn? I hear you asking, dear listeners. I would be delighted to tell you. Thrawn, military genius, investigator, honorable warrior, mysterious outsider. He is from a strange and mostly unknown race of aliens called the Chiss, who are very insular, fiercely proud, and intelligent. They have blue skin and red eyes. And Thrawn was exiled from their society because he disagreed with their military tactics. So that is kind of the event that sort of separates the two series is Thrawn Ascendancy is before he's exiled from the Chiss. And so it goes a little bit more into Chiss society and his own way of functioning within that society versus uh, the second Thrawn series, the one that I picked up the first book of, follows actually once he's picked up from the, by the Empire from the planet that he was marooned on and uh, how he starts to kind of make his way in the Imperial world. Uh, I would describe his character as being very Spock or Sherlock Holmes-esque, although I would say he doesn't neatly fit into either of those categories. And, you know, as every Sherlock Holmes needs his Watson, we have one of our other main characters, Ensign Eli Banto. So Eli has a strong wild space or outer rim accent that I always imagined as a bit of like Appalachian twang, just from the way that they write it. And um, he can speak a few languages that are sort of looked down upon by the xenophobic empire as being uh, primitive and backwards. One of these languages that Eli speaks fluently just happens to be the one that Thrawn also speaks fluently, giving them a common language that cannot be understood by translator droids or most people they come across. What Eli doesn't know is that this will mark him essentially for the rest of his career as Thrawn's translator. This is at the request of Thrawn himself and initially, it is for that genuine reason of translation. Thrawn speaks and understands basic, aka English, very well. But he's not as familiar with slang or like colloquial phrases. And so Eli kind of provides the translation. So most of the time, this isn't, I think, used as comedically as I kind of wish it was. But there's definitely some moments where it's like, he'll kind of turn to him and he'll just have sort of a blank face. And Eli will be like, Ugh. They just insulted you. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do. And quickly, with the dynamic between the two, Thrawn realizes how overlooked Eli's intelligence is. Uh, he's kind of seen as a country bumpkin. And so they find, I would say, companions in each other as fellow outsiders. And so together, the two kind of solve crimes. They defeat military enemies. They fool pirates, navigate the questionable social structure of the empire, they carve a path from strange stowaway alien to Grand Admiral Thrawn and his most trusted aide, Eli Vanto. So this writing style is very Star Wars-y. 
and it has a lot of elements that you kind of think of as appearing in the Star Wars movies, if you are a fan of them, as I obviously am. That means a lot of politics, a lot of philosophy, a lot of character development and action, but also a lot of sci-fi gobbledygook. So one of my favorite elements was that each chapter starts with one of Thrawn's musings on military tactics with like a very Sun Tzu, like art of war type feel. And then throughout the chapter, you also have these tiny interludes of him picking up on details and translating them into information he can work with. So he'll notice that someone has like a particular tick or um, maybe someone's like getting warmer because they're angry or embarrassed or something like that. And it's kind of trying to illustrate that little science of deduction sort of elements into a form that is something that you can pick up in, in a way that I didn't actually expect to translate as well as it did. Thrawn's character has a lot of really interesting beliefs that it explores in the books, including the fact that he thinks stories that you tell about other people actually reveal more information about the person doing the storytelling than the stories themselves. He's a big art fan. That's a, that's a big part of his character. And so he loves analyzing cultures based on the art that they deem noteworthy. And in general, General uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn has like the same mastermind kind of characters as like a Kaz Brecker or an Artemis Fowl or a lot of the other characters I hold dear. So I already knew I was going to like him coming into it because I knew who Thrawn was. But actually finally getting to pick up this book, joy of my week. I was so excited. If you've ever seen the Star Wars Rebels TV show, Thrawn shows up in that. So I would highly recommend watching it if you enjoyed the book or vice versa if you enjoyed the show. And in general, I think this book would be one that I might suggest to people who love mysteries and politics and conspiracies and who like like sci-fi flavored action, I would almost say. But also if you like a villain origin story, because Thrawn's Imperial, he's definitely not one of the good guys. And like me, if you love stories about two outsiders who find themselves bound together as they navigate and find success in a world that doesn't respect or understand them, I would say that this is actually one of those ones that you probably could pick up if you weren't a Star Wars fan. But it's definitely one of those ones where if you are someone who maybe reluctantly reads but are very interested in the movies, pick the book up. Because this one would be the one that would make you start reading other stuff. Because I thought that it was great. And with a one word title, Thrawn, all I needed to know. I was already there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gabriel. Uh, there was lots of the banter with the turned off mics and exclaiming of the word Thrawn. Yeah, I I didn't know that I needed a Star Wars mystery. So I think I am actually going to pick that up. And perhaps if you are looking for some new Star Wars content and you have decided to pass on Boba Fett, this is a great place to go. I have our last book for today. I love a long title as well. I love a pretentious title. I love a self-referential title. And though occasionally uh, a one-word title can draw me in because I think it's very bold, I prefer something that says everything and nothing all at once, you know, that has a grounded aspect but is also extremely vague. And my pick for today met a lot of those needs is The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. 
Now, to be fair, I did pick this up because Ruth Ozeki's A Tale for the Time Being is one of my all-time favorite books. So I would have read it regardless, but I still really love the title. Okay, where to start? There is, it is a book about a book. So that comes across in the title, but the rest of it is just like basically nodding to Ozeki's love of vagueness, but I don't know. I wish I had the words to describe because it's something that just really hits me in my heart, the way that, that she writes about everything and nothing at the same time. This is a bit of a long book and it has a few different POVs. The first is Benny O. He is a preteen and then teen boy throughout the, the book. And he has recently lost his father. His father is a Japanese-Korean jazz musician who has immigrated to the U.S. and he has a terrible accident, perhaps due in part to being high at the time. Benny was very close to his father and was sort of the bridge between him and his mother, Annabelle. So they were a close-knit family, even though they were uh, living in poverty, they had a happy life together. And Annabelle and Kenji, who's the father, have a beautiful love story. And it's very, very sad to see Annabelle's life crumbling after the loss of Kenji. So I believe um, we have we have Annabelle's story as well. It's not it's not first person, but there's chapters about her. And then, of course, there is the book, uh, the point of view of the book. And this book is Kenji's book, but it's not just his story. It's usually a conversation between Kenji and the book. Uh, so a little bit experimental there and really kept things interesting and very philosophical. And a lot of the book is about, is waxing poetic about books and their role in society and what it might be like to be a book and live among humans. So I really enjoyed those interjections of sort of like, I definitely wouldn't call this um, a grounded book in like any way. Sorry. And I'm using the word book and book and it's confusing because there's a book, but there's also a book in the book. The book of form and emptiness. No, that's not going to work either. The book I have read <laughs> is not a grounded book. Definitely has elements of fantastical realism. Oh, I can't even remember where I was going through that with that thought. You know, when you say a word so many times that it loses meaning. So I'll pick up a new thread. We also have um, a band of lovable misfit vagabonds, which, you know, for me, that's a, that's a big plus. Uh, there is a Eastern European poet who is now homeless uh, in the U.S. And he is sort of the leader of, of this ragtag group. Uh, and he's always philosophizing and he's teaching the young people how to think about life differently, talking about consumerism. And Benny crosses paths uh, with these, these people and uh, the B-man, uh, uh, it kind of takes him under his wing. There is also the Aleph, who is a uh, young woman who has run away from home and it's suggested that she has a drug addiction. And the worst part of the whole book is that Benny falls in love with her in this really gross, like, younger boy, older girl way. Uh, and he's just like, 
pining after her, but it's like not, she's like this amazing artist. And, you know, like he's just pining after her because he's beautiful. She's beautiful. <laughs> and so that like of all the things in the book was like very frustrating. Um, but otherwise I actually like, I didn't think I'd want to read about uh, like a young teen boy, but Benny was a very interesting character. So he, he hears voices and these are auditory hallucinations, but they come from objects. Uh, so for instance, his his shoe might start talking to him or a window pane might tell him that they are sad because a bird has crashed into them. They're not really talking to Benny in words, but he's able to communicate them to us through words to, to say what these objects are feeling. Now, this, of course, is overwhelming and causes a lot of issues for Benny, and he ends up in the child psych ward. So I was glad that this actually was dealt with uh, in terms of a mental illness. And he's diagnosed throughout the book with different things, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia. But I did want to say a content warning that it's a very fictionalized uh, response to, to mental illness. And, and the author uses it to tell a story about objects and consumerism and, and mental health and how we deal with it. But it's not necessarily a good representation of schizophrenia. And I think that that can sometimes be damaging or upsetting to people because basically we see Benny's um, experience as real as he really is, um, you know, having conversations with these, these shoes and stuff. So definitely great for telling a story, but, but could be upsetting if you have experienced or know people who have. I just like, it's, it's hard to talk about this book because it meant, it meant so much to me. It was such a journey. It was so long. It was such a big part of my life. Um, for like for the last, last month, just like, you know, spent a lot of time on it and it's beautiful and heartbreaking and fun. It's far from a perfect book, but like I say, Ruth Ozeki always manages to just encapsulate the experience of living so well and and touches on so many different things you know like just from hoarding at the secondhand store to making friends with crows to reading Voorhees to like just all of these tiny things that that might trigger something for you that you can relate to and she manages to bring them into this beautiful story that you feel like it's so random and then it's you always know it's going to come around in this big beautiful conclusion that really makes you feel good about life <laughs> so it, like i said it has a lot of difficult subjects there's you know poverty and annabelle uh, risks losing benny to the foster system because she struggles so much when kenji dies but all of this is sort of told in such a fairy tale way that you can explore those issues, but you also are cradled in Ozeki's arms and know that everything is going to be okay. So if you haven't read any of her books before, why not? This is a great place to start. I like, I just, I adore her. I worship her. <laughs> and of course, she's actually a, a Japanese nun herself. So she often brings in uh, monks and nuns to her stories, which is, you know, going to bring me back every time. So I hope you will check it out. The Book of Form and Emptiness, a book about a book, about a book, Ruth Ozeki. All right. We talked about a lot of good titles today, um, but of course, there's always more. I would love to hear what everyone out there thinks is a good title 
what draws you to something? Have you ever picked up a book just because you liked the way the words looked together or felt on your tongue? Have you ever whispered to yourself, Thrawn, Thrawn? You have to say it in a deeper tone of voice. Okay, show me. Thrawn. It's not, it's not like Khan. <laughs> I know I said Spock, but the Star Trek, the Star Trek references are not doing it for me, guys. I'm sorry. No, it's like a deep Tron, like Thrawn. A con is a con. Different pitches, different pitches, different pitches. I feel like we've all learned a lot here. So no matter how you read your Thrawn, we're glad you've joined us today. Keep it fictional. Have a lovely day. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.